Hello everyone, this is Noah and John and we are from Urban Digs. This is Talk in Manhattan. John, we got Ari Harkov here from Brown Harris Stevens. This guy's all the way, all the way at the top. This guy does so much deal volume. And today's episode is going to be one of those episodes where you're going to feel like a fly on the wall in one of the top producers of Manhattan real estate. Yeah, so. I'm looking forward to it. This is, uh, Ari's been on before and it's always just, it's all meat, no, no fat. Yeah. yeah, it's good. It's a good food. It's good food for your brain. So Ari, with that, you know, welcome. Welcome to our show. Um, thanks for being on again. Thanks for having me. I won't live up to any of that, but thank you. <laughs> you will. You will. <laughs> so let's let's start high level, Ari. Just tell us what's going on in the market. People want to know what's going on today. What do you see? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, if you look at the arc of the pandemic, we had, you know, March 22nd, our world shut down three months exactly to June 22nd, where we weren't able to show in person. You had transaction volume that was 80, 85% off of typical transaction volume during that period, which is like a two-sided point. On the one hand, you could say you're removing 80 plus percent of the Manhattan market, which is sort of shocking. On the other hand, pretty amazing that we did 15 to 20% of normal volume when we couldn't physically show property. Um, then the market reopened June 22nd. We had two, three, four months of really complete insanity. Um, and when I say complete insanity, transaction volume didn't return to necessarily pre-COVID levels, but everything took like three or four hours to do one hour of normal pre-COVID work. So the, the work volume um, was pretty insane. Um, we'll talk about kind of what segments of the market were most active, but it was very active overall. Um, and now we're getting to the point where you're approaching the holidays. It's the winter. We're starting to see, you know, COVID cases spiking. People are, you know, talking about potentially a second shutdown. Um, and I would say overall things have slowed down, but not as much as I necessarily would have thought. Um, and then the other overarching theme, and it's this weird overlap. You've got like scary winter coming, but that you then you also have like maybe really positive spring summer coming. And those two things are overlapping in an interesting way. So what I've been telling folks is. I think the worst is behind us, but we're not yet on a rise, if that makes sense. No, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. And that's one of the things that we've been talking about for the last several weeks is that it seems like momentum was really starting to build, you know, coming into what's typically the end of the fall season around right around Thanksgiving. And it looks like the week after Thanksgiving was pretty much the same as the week before Thanksgiving. And it seems like it might be a busier winter season than most people would anticipate. I'm wondering if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, I am seeing the same thing. I mean, it's interesting, you know, we've actually had an uptick in activity in the last week or two on some of our listings, which is sort of shocking. We've had a couple listings where we had contracts out where buyers came in and made offers above contract prices while we had contracts out, which, you know, is a mini anecdote, but it hasn't happened in a while. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We've got some deals and projects on the new development side where we're doing um, we're doing deals right now at the lowest concession we've done thus far. Um, so there, there are definitely some green shoots there. I don't want to mislead people. I don't want anyone thinking that prices are on the rise. I don't think they are. Um, yeah. I think that the market, I think the market is bottomed out. You guys say it a lot on your Friday pieces, and I'll say it here. You know, the buyers that were looking to sort of bottom take the market, I think have probably already missed the bottom. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And I think the bottom was was probably somewhere around June, July. Um, you could probably even say May. Um, but you know what? It's very important that you you made a good distinction. We're talking about deal activity here. We're not talking about price action. So when we we see deal activity is coming way back, and we're kind of back to levels where it's like, oh my god, there's actually activity here, like an active season. We're not used to this. Prices probably have bottomed, stabilized, and started that turn back up to maybe where it would have been before all this but it's, it's still got a ways to go. So we are still down in terms of pricing. Right. 
yeah, okay. and I and I would just go farther. I, I think that's you know it's it's very interesting because um, if you look at the deal activity during the pandemic, I mean it went from you know 100% early March to down to you know what you said earlier, like 10 to 15% of normal, which is just de minimis activity because of the lockdown. Now here's what here's the question I have for you, Ari, is if we do enter a second lockdown when real estate is shut down, what would you expect contract activity to do? Because I, I feel like the my theory is that the fear level and the uncertainty level were sky high in March through June. Now uncertainty still remains high, but fear has really dropped. And I think that's what's driving a lot of activity. So I'm just curious uh, how you would, would see sort of a second shutdown hit uh, deal activity. So the way I think about our business and probably a lot of businesses is it's all about expectations. Right now, people have an expectation that it's going to be a miserable winter and then things are going to get better. So as long as it's not more miserable than we predict it to be in our minds, I think to your point, the fear won't spike in the way that it did in April, May, June. Mm -hmm. So I think if we do enter a second shutdown, it will probably be more active than the first shutdown was just based on the fact that it's sort of like, we all know it's likely coming. Um, and the flip side is we also all know there's probably a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I think that you've got a number of buyers who are starting to feel like maybe I've missed the bottom or maybe it's not getting better or, you know, any number of things that could happen that could make buying less attractive such that I might be more motivated to buy in a theoretical January lockdown than I would have been in, let's say, the April lockdown. Right. Yeah, it's such an interesting point, John, because I think I totally agree with that. I think we're going to get desensitized to it. Um, it's not going to be that first shock, that initial uncertainty where we didn't know what the hell was going on. We kind of we're going to come out of it like we're not rookies anymore. We're kind of like many, many experts now on this. We're <laughs> veterans, you know, of this whole thing, if that happens again. Yep. <laughs> to say it in a weird way. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, are you touched on something earlier, which I think is very germane, not only to the sales market, but especially the rentals market, which I think we were planning on getting to later, but I'm just going to go ahead and open up this can of worms now, which is that there's a, there's a sort of a dis dichotomy, I suppose, between short-term expectations of what the market's happening and sort of like long-term expectations and short-term is everything's everything's a bit of a mess it's a bit jumpy but when you sort of start picturing say new york city of the future like five seven years down the road it's like oh okay it's i i understand that most likely the city will still exist it will still be a fun place to be we will have restaurants there will be uh concerts and things like this and i, I think this this sort of of, of um dislocation between uh, time horizons is more sort of acute in the rental market, but I'm curious if you're seeing this on, on what it looks like in the sales market to you. And also if you want to touch on the rentals market, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think so you're dealing with different issues in the sales and rental market. Like, so one of the interesting things about the sales market is there is to a certain extent an ability to control inventory levels, meaning I'm an owner, I own a property, the market isn't where I want it to be. I'm not a forced seller. I may not put my property on the market. So I have an ability to make a decision. If I'm a landlord, I can't not rent my units. I have to rent the units. So I'm always a market taker to a certain extent. And so what you're seeing now in the rental market is this massive stockpiling of inventory where you had more inventory that should have come on during peak season, less demand than we normally would have had. And now the inventory is continuing to pile as we now head into the worst rental time of the year, traditionally speaking, in the winter. So the rental market is getting hammered and it's really not pretty, whereas the sales market is actually holding up a little better. So it's funny, like at the beginning of the pandemic, there was almost this inverse of the rental market was doing better because people needed a place to live and they were scared to buy. And now the sales market seems to be doing better because you know we sort of hit the bottom, whereas the rental market slide is sadly, I think, still continuing. 
Yeah, that's interesting. The rental market didn't really roll over until like June, July. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder why. You know, let's let's delve into where those markets are. Um, let's talk about some some deals and where they're happening. Getting I'm getting excited here. Let's talk sales first. Tell me what you're seeing in terms of discounts. I'm a buyer out there. I think the market's down 15 to 20%. Where can we keep telling people and showing them data that's not right? So tell us where your deals are happening. So as as we've always said, and, and you guys always say, there is no New York City market. There are thousands of submarkets. So the price point, the neighborhood, the building type, condo, co-op, walk-up, elevator, you know, even block by block, it, it all varies. Um, the big picture is Brooklyn, probably five-ish percent, maybe pushing 10, and Manhattan, somewhere probably 10 to 20, depending on the property type. Um, sub 1 million condo in Manhattan, a desirable location, probably 5%. You know, Upper East Side, um, you know, seven room co-op that needs a renovation could be 20%, you know, so there's a range. Um, but you've said it a lot and I think it's very true. The buyers are thinking, oh my God, this is a pandemic. I should be getting 20% off. And the sellers are thinking, eh, 5% and some of them meet in the middle. You know, and that, that's kind of what we've been seeing. I mean, it's weird to say this, but hasn't changed that much in terms of a discount level really since we reopened in July. You know, it's been relatively flat. It's hovering a little bit, but it's been relatively flat. Yeah. So, I mean, buyers, I mean, you had a, you didn't miss it in terms of price action. What you missed is, is those, those buyers that bid in April, May, and June, and, and they should deserve this. I think there was a higher frequency of um, gap down bids being hit by sellers that are, um, fearful, as John was mentioning, or forced to liquidate for whatever reason. Whereas if we look today and we look at that same frequency of those types of situations, it's just way lower. And even even then it wasn't high. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like every seller was hitting a bid. So as a distressed buyer, it was, you know, it's happening here and there. I mean, I mean, one way to sort of simplify what you're saying is to say, I think if you were going to transact because of COVID, meaning you're leaving the city, you're a poor seller, you've got financial issues, you're scared, whatever it is on the sell side, or you're going to transact because of COVID, meaning you see it's a buying opportunity, you've already done so. You've had nine months to do your deal. At this right. point, the transactions we were doing are not COVID inspired. They're just transactions as they would always be in any market. Right. Interesting. What about rentals? Where's Give me like a broad overview about where the rental market is in relation to before all this started. So the rental market is, um, uh, you've got a couple of things going on right now. So you've got the seasonal component, which we talked about a little bit, which is, you know, we're heading into what is typically the slowest time of year. You've got less normal lease turnover. You've still got, you know, some people who are moving out of the city or otherwise, you know, deciding not to rent um, COVID related or not. Um, and you have essentially no inbound traffic. You know, people are not moving to New York City right now in any sort of substantive numbers for new jobs, relocation, schooling, et cetera. So, you know, this, uh, the demand side is falling and the supply side is continuing to rise, which is not true. Um, as is the case in the sales market, Brooklyn is faring better than Manhattan. Manhattan is bad, I'm not gonna lie, it's bad. Um, Brooklyn is anywhere from actually not so bad to okay, I would say. Um, so, you know, the Brooklyn deals tend to get done. The concessions are bigger. They're not what they were. Um, you know, the deals are not happening what they were at pre-COVID levels, but the deals are generally getting done. The traffic is okay. And we're transacting, you know, the Manhattan market. I mean, yeah, there are rentals that are, you know, when all said and done 25, 30 plus percent off of pre-COVID levels, when you really factor in all the concessions, um, the numbers are huge. Um, are you so seeing those concessions fade at all, or are they still kind of, no, I would actually say they're going up now. 
Wow. So, I mean, we're still trying to find a bottom in that rental market. Yes, because the rental market is being hit by this seasonal trend, which exists in any rental market. So it's a double win. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a, it's a great point. And that's, I think, you know, it goes back to sort of, you know, the whole time horizon thing. I think, as you mentioned, a lot of the landlords out there are market takers. So they have to basically make their monthly nut, give it, you know, month in, month out. So they have to okay. rent a certain number of apartments every month to kind of, you know, keep it afloat. But at the same time, I would imagine a lot are trying to hold on to some inventory to hopefully have sort of a brighter summer, uh, late spring, perhaps. So I'm sure they're in a bit of a bind. Um, but if yeah. I if I could go back to you know I think you made a great point about Brooklyn and, I, and I'm just curious you know on you know when you look at the Brooklyn markets you look at Manhattan I mean Brooklyn after the reopen just was like a match it just just took off on fire and was going crazy and I know you guys uh, do a lot of business in both Brooklyn and Manhattan and I'm wondering if you kind of you know compare and contrast those markets for us in terms of you know what buyers are looking for and what they what they sort of expect um, because it seems like the trend from Brooklyn to Manhattan has been, it's not just a COVID thing. It's been sort of underway for the last several years. I'm wondering if you kind of touch on that a bit. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I mean, I've been saying this for months, like a broken record. I think that a lot of what COVID has done in many areas of our lives is take trends that were already there and highlight them, caricature them, bring them to the surface, whatever phrase you want to use. But to your point, you know, Brooklyn was already doing a lot better pre-COVID. The upper end of the luxury condo market in Manhattan was already really bad pre-COVID. So a lot of what's happened here is you took trends like the retail landscape in Manhattan and they were bad before and now it's like a dumpster fire. But you know, they, you kind of highlighted the issues that were already there. So with Brooklyn versus Manhattan during the pandemic, you've got a couple of things going on. One is Brooklyn is not reliant on tourism. It's not reliant on the second home market. It's not reliant on commuters. You know, I live in Westchester, but I have to sleep in Manhattan four days a week because I, you know, I'm in my cubicle till 11 p.m. Um, it has none of that transience and it has more of a communal neighborhood component to it. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is because of that, um, as a causation and correlation, less people left Brooklyn, whereas more people left Manhattan. So when you look at like the, the population exodus from New York City, and I've said this before, there was no population exodus from New York City. It was a population exodus from Manhattan. And that's a very important distinction. Obviously, people left Brooklyn, but not nearly at the numbers that they left Manhattan. So what you have in Brooklyn is a combination of local people who have been buying, and then some folks who have left Manhattan but gone to Brooklyn to buy, and that has bolstered the market. Whereas Manhattan, people have left, but no one's coming in to buy in any sort of meaningful, substantive numbers. Um, so it's a very different market. Um, and it's also interesting because if you were to break down Manhattan, as you guys like to do, if you look at the neighborhoody sections of Manhattan, the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, the Village, et cetera, very different landscape than let's say if you were to look at like the midtown condo market. Um, so it tells you a little bit about what's happening. Like the people who live here, who make their homes here are the ones who are buying. Mm -hmm. Every now and again, we get an out of towner, but they're just not buying anymore. Yeah, and I was just gonna say like the out of town, the foreign investors, um, all the all the, the businesses that are sending sending the, their people in, um, you know, if you think about the market, it's 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 all these tentacles of all these different kinds of, of of workers and demographics and places and all that kind of stuff. If you break down where all the buyers are coming from, and 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 it seems like Manhattan's got a lot of different tentacles, and the Brooklyn market's got tentacles, and Manhattan's just missing them. It's just they're all cut off right now, and there's just only two of ten tentacles that are active. And what's going to happen is it's going to slowly come back over time, right? You're going to see a couple of tentacles come back here. You're going to see a couple of sectors get active here. You can see foreign investors coming back. You'll see businesses come back. 
it'll happen and the market will slowly get back to normal. It's interesting. But I want to shift for a second because I, uh, we got a lot of agents out there that are that are running into obstacles with deals. Okay, they're they're calling me, they're telling me they're running into obstacles. Um, are you seeing any obstacles when you're when you're negotiating or in the contract phase um, or or challenges of any way? Um, and if so, what are those biggest challenges so agents can try to get ahead of that? Um, everything's a challenge. <laughs> I mean, that's Imagine. that's the yeah. thing about the pandemic. I mean, every deal is harder. Every deal is a heavier lift. Um, I mean, I hired and expanded on my team during COVID, not necessarily because our revenue has grown, but because the workload has just grown like threefold. So you've got administrative challenges. I mean, even just something as simple as like every time we want to show a property, filling out you know, three forms and sending them back and forth and whatever, which sounds like really not that complicated. When you build that up over you know dozens and dozens of showings is actually an administrative headache. Um, and then in terms of deals... Yeah, you've got banks changing guidelines, loan-to-value leverage issues, um, pre-sale requirements, et cetera. You've got the complicating elements of like, you know, this building does Zoom interviews, this building does in-person interviews, this building you can read the board minutes online, that one you can't. You know, um, this attorney is working on a deal, God forbid, his associate just got COVID, now he's not working right now. So there's just so many different complicating factors that we didn't have pre-COVID. But I would say the biggest issue by far and away is that there's no urgency on the part of buyers and there has not been for months. There's no like, oh my God, if I don't buy this, prices are going up or inventory is falling off a cliff and I'm not gonna have something. So you don't have that like power that kind of pushes you through deals as we've had for so many years and have gotten used to in year six. Um, you have to work a lot harder as a broker, um, which, you know, fine, like that's part of our job. So um, yeah, but it's, it's tough. And I think my biggest, um, my heart goes out for the newer agents because I think it's really hard to learn your craft during the market we're in right now. If you know your craft, executing becomes harder, but it's just a matter of like how many hours in a day are you willing to put in? If you don't know your craft, really hard to go from like zero to five right now because like you can't network, you can't go out and meet people. It's really hard to learn. Yeah, and you know what? This allows me a chance to actually say something on Talking Manhattan that I usually don't say. I say it on a weekly report. You got to be careful. This illiquid market, the unintended consequence of an illiquid period is that we have now one third or one fourth the, the amount of comps and sales and, and that types of data to use for pricing and for sales trends. And I got agents calling me every week saying, no, I'm looking at these charts, these price per square foot charts in these areas are all over the map. And I keep saying over and over again, you got to use caution when you're looking at those charts and that data gets really, really, really tight and low and there's nothing there. Which leads me to my question, comps. Pricing property is extremely difficult. You used to have 10 things to look at, you got two now. So, so how do you handle that whole pricing conversation? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so I priced out a property for a client last week and I did, which I've never done before, I used only in contract sales. And I used only in contract sales, not knowing the contract prices, but putting in a guesstimate based on time on market and just my gut intuition, because if I hadn't, I had nothing relevant to use for him. Um, so I'm doing things like that. I'm doing things where I'm taking a sale from two or three years ago and I'm trying to adjust it for COVID. Um, and by the way, as an aside, I want to say this because I think it's important to say, no one actually knows how much the market is down from a price perspective due to COVID. No one knows because the only way to know would be to say, this property would have traded for X you know, in, in February and now it's trading for Y. 
but you don't know what it would have traded for. So we're all using like best guesses and estimates. And so, you know, take the numbers, 5%, 10%, 15%, whatever it is with a grain of salt. But yeah, comps are really hard. Um, it's really hard to run numbers right now. If you're lucky, you get a couple of good ones. But, you know, I was saying to this client last week, so phase two reopened in June. Even if a property went on the market, sold in July or August and closed in like September, October, those are my first comps. And we're only in the beginning of December. So there aren't that many of them where I really truly know the closed price and I have them at scale. Um, right. So you've got to be creative is the answer. That's great. And, and let me just ask you this, a very follow-up a little bit. Um, the price cut conversation, you know, I think we, this is a question that, that we often get sort of behind the scenes is, hey, when, do I, when should I have a price cut and, and how much should it be? And I'm just curious, has that uh, sort of conversation changed uh, in this new environment for you? Um, has that conversation changed? Uh, I would say yes and no. No, it hasn't in the sense that there's some basic tenets that I think still hold true. Price reductions that are sub 5%, meaning you make less than a 5% adjustment, in my mind, are always pointless. Um, we always tell people if it's within 5%, someone's going to see it, they're going to bid on it, you know, they're going to engage. So, you know, going from, you know, whatever it is, a million to 975 is, is useless, in my opinion. Um, so there's certain basic tenants like that that still hold true. Um, the one thing that I think has shifted is that the buyer mindset of the first thing they ask when they walk through the door is how long has this been on the market? And if it's more than like five minutes, they think something's wrong with it has completely gone away. So the, the sense of like, okay, you've been on for 90 days, but I'll still put in a reasonably competitive bid is very different now than it was pre-COVID. Um, and so in that way, I feel less urgency to drop prices um, mm -hmm. because I think the buyer pool has sort of accepted a slower moving market overall. Um, but beyond that, like no one's inquired in three weeks, your price is wrong. You know, um, like you got three bids and they were all 15% off your asking price. Your price is wrong. Like certain things are just clearly that they haven't changed. Yeah. And just to end on that, John, really quick, um, you know, we did that quick report the other day, John, where we looked at all of the closed deals since that were signed into contract since the reopen every single one so we had a good batch of data to look at over the last five six months and what we noticed is if you close if you were lucky enough to close in under a month your listing discount was only two percent if you were one to two months it was five percent if you were two to three months it was seven percent but if you were on the market for more than three months it jumps right up to 13 14 and 15 percent as you go higher yep so for any sellers out there that are listening when we say pricing right means everything, again, those those people that priced right and sold quick, they got 98% of their asking price in today's market. And I want to add to that, I think what you're saying is spot on. And I think it's a mix of causation and correlation, meaning you've been on the market longer, so people bid you lower because they feel they can. And also correlation in the sense that you overpriced, which causes you to be on the market longer. But it's both, which I think is important. A lot of psychology. I love it. This is great. John, any final points? Nope. I, that was a masterclass as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Bookmark this one. We talked Thanks a lot. That is Ari Harkov of Brown Arrow Stevens. That is John Walkup. I am Noah Rosenblatt. We are from Urban Digs. This has been Talking Manhattan, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me.